to yet another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with all those movers and shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the directors, the writers, the actors, the cinematographers, production designers, costume designers, film editors, the sound mixers, sound editors, composers, authors, you name it, we talk to them. And, uh, you know, getting ready here, getting anxious to see what happens with Emmys. You know, Emmy Awards, the four-year consideration campaigns are in, are in full swing right now to see, uh, you know, what, who our Emmy nominees are going to be this year. Uh, I'm very anxiously uh, awaiting that. And also, because of Hollywood Critics Association, uh, the critics group that, of which I'm a member, we are going to ha- uh, our, we're going to have our television uh, awards, our second annual television awards, I believe this August. But we're going to start doing our voting um, shortly, as well as our mid-season film awards. Unlike most critics groups, we give out Mid-season awards. We don't have. We save the big soiree for the whole year uh, that we have. This past year, we had it at the end of February. Uh, I'm guessing next year we may be. It'll be before the Oscars. That much I do know. Whether it'll be very early January, February, I don't know yet. Uh, but we also do mid-season awards. So I'm going to be casting my ballot for those in a multiplicity of categories later this week. Uh, And I'm very excited for that. Some of my favorite films, they may not be on everybody's list, but there's a lot of good, there are a lot of great indie gems out there. And I really hope that you take, you take a look at the, at a lot of the films that we talk about here on behind the lens, other films on social media that I mention quite often, um, and yes, that includes sewer gators, people. Those of you that know me know that I have been on a, a, a rant about the wonder of sewer gators. And I know right now, Greg Sivarazdi uh, is laughing his ass off listening to me say that. Um, I, and Scott Menzel probably is as well. Um, every once in a while, these films come along that are just fabulous. They're so bad, they're fabulous. But when they're intentionally bad, it makes it even better. And come on, sewer gators, people. How often can you say you've seen an alligator film where all the alligators were purchased in the Dollar Tree? Little plastic alligators are are the alligator, uh, the uh, adversarial alligators, shall we say, in sewer gators. It's, It's just a fun favorite of mine. And, you know, check it out. But talk about checking stuff out. I am thrilled. You know, last week we went global. We talked to Robert Lieberman about his film about Mongolia, Genghis Khan. This week, we're going to Kathmandu, Nepal, and the, the summit of Mount Everest with Alex Harz, uh, talking about He's going to be joining us momentarily, uh, talking about his documentary, The Quest, Nepal. Oh, my God, this has to be the, one of the most spectacular documentaries you will ever see, people. Um, he actually has cameras, and we are on the climb to the top of Mount Everest, the highest point 
on planet Earth. Uh, it is, the views are, you will be gobsmacked, your jaw will be dropping, the cinematography is dazzling, the sun, the blue skies. And we learn a lot of information along Alex's journey. Because this is actually Alex making this climb. Uh, so I can't wait for him to give us a call so we can talk about that. And then later in the show, we're going to go to one of the lower points on the planet, down to Louisiana Bayou, for a fun narrative film from writer, director, editor Christine Chen, Erzuli, uh, which actually just came out digitally. So you can catch that. Um, it involves a little voodoo. It involves friends getting together. And it involves a Haitian mermaid goddess. So going from the top of the world, you know, somewhere close to below sea level. Uh, so this is a fun, fun show. And I can't wait for you to talk with both of our guests. And our first guest... Alex Harz is with us. Welcome, Alex. How you doing, Debbie? I can't tell you how excited I am to talk to you about the Quest Nepal. I well, you know what i I appreciate you taking the time to uh, you know ask me some questions and to chit chat about the film. I'm definitely excited to speak with you as well. Alex, you blew my mind with this film. I'm watching this. I mean, yes, I've seen uh, Nat Geo footage of Mount Everest, and I've seen other other photographs and, and some films of people uh, attempting to climb to the summit. I have never seen anything like what you bring us. I mean, number one, the top of the, at the summit, the peak. Um, you've never seen Mother Nature so beautiful, so pristine, so crystalline. Uh, with the blue skies and the sun and the snow, uh, and it's and it's a true white. It hasn't been polluted yet. Um, but yeah. you take us on this journey, really, that starts in Kathmandu, and we get to meet the people and learn about the culture and the colors of life that they have, and then the Sherpas and the the traditions. And everything that people complain about, oh, you know, climbing Everest, it's, it's a business, it's this, it's that. It may be in some respects, but it provides jobs and essentially, quote-unquote, careers, generational careers for the Sherpas. And it is, this is so encompassing, so fascinating, and so entertaining, and so beautiful, all rolled into one, Alex. I don't know how you pulled it off. <laughs> Needless to say, Debbie is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, in front or behind the camera. Uh, you know, of course, uh, it, the, that whole point to the story, and I, I really appreciate that, the kind words about the Quest Nepal. Um, the whole point to the story was to really showcase the country of Nepal. You know, the Hinduism, the Buddhism, the communist civil war, all the different aspects that you might not get to hear or see about, especially in the West, right. you know, about Nepal. And Mount Everest is t happens to take a big part of that portion of what Nepal is identified as and what it means, because it took 52 days to climb that mountain. Mm -hmm. So obviously, of the 60 days of production in Nepal, 
Uh, 52 of those days were consumed by the Everest expedition. But we wanted to really tell the bigger story as it relates to Nepal, as well as what does the mountain actually mean to the country, and what does the country mean to the mountain, and what is this little Southeast Asian nation really all about where most people couldn't even place it on a map. And so I greatly appreciate those kind words. And if we were able to facilitate that, because that's really what my job is, is just to be kind of the facilitator to tell Nepal's story and Tashi's story and Kumar's stories, Mount Everest story, and all the subject matter that we cover in the film to tell their story, then that's all I can ask for. And then hopefully that was, you know, what was achieved. Well, I think you definitely achieved it. But what is so interesting about how you achieved it, Alex, is that, you weren't lecturing us. You were having conversations with people. You're punctuating this with voiceover, giving us some backstory of certain things. Uh, I don't think that many people realize that Kathmandu is, is the birthplace of Buddhism. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Nepal is the birthplace of Buddhism, and most people think it's India, but it's, it's actually not. not. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. you also, I, a, a big question, I stopped counting, but how many times did you receive blessings before you started the climb? <laughs> many, many. You know, I, I got quite a few katas, which are these ceremonial scarves that are put around you. Obviously, you've seen the film that, you know, a very legendary monk uh, blesses us before mm-hmm. we head further down the Kumbu Valley towards Everest Base Camp. You know, we get blessing from the mountain itself during our puja ceremony because you're not even allowed to touch the mountain until you go through a lengthy puja puja ceremony, which is a Tibetan Buddhist and a Sherpa tradition. Because from what we think of what the Mother Earth is or the goddess mother of the world is, we have a vague construct that it might be the sky or it might be the weather. But for the Sherpa people and for the Tibetan Buddhists, they believe that the goddess mother of the world is actually Mount Everest. So in order to have access and get safe passage on the mountain, for example, we needed a blessing from the mountain, from the goddess mother of the world, Chomalungma or Chomomia Lungsama, as they call her. So along that whole process, and even in Kathmandu, like you mentioned, you know, from the Hindu sadhus, which are holy wise men, getting their blessing, you know, going to the, the Buddhist stupas to get their blessing, to circumambulate around, you know, the largest stupa in the world you know, to get its blessing. It was a constant process. And regardless of how spiritual you may or may not be, it has a direct uh, effect on you over the course of those 63 days, that's for sure. Well, for my money, if I were going to be insane enough to try and tackle climbing to the (laughs) summit of Mount Everest, I would want all the blessings I could get. Um, (laughs) Indeed. But uh, the one with the exchange between you and the monkey god... It yes. was fabulous, fabulous. Um, but at every turn, you're reeling us in with something else. New factoids, new things that aren't in the history books, that aren't even really, if you casually Google, you're not even going to find it. You've got to look for very specific things to find this information that you're sharing with us. But more than that, it's you let us meet the people. And we get to know the people and their history and their culture. And that's something that you can't get in a book or on Google. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're 100% right about that, Debbie. The whole point, uh, you know, secondary point to it was is to tell you these rarely seen untold stories from these fascinating places in the world. And the first installment 
of the Quest series happens to be the Quest Nepal, and so therefore that was our objective. Like, you know, the monkey god Hanuman Baba, well, he's a Hindu sadhu. You know, he's a holy wise man. He actually lives on the Pashupati Nath Temple Grounds, which is a 3,000-year-old temple. You know, it's one of the oldest temples in the world, and, he, and they live in caves. And he's been living there for 42 years, denounced anything that had to do with material gain for his sole purpose of trying to achieve moksha, which is the Hindu, you know, equivalent to trying to reach nirvana. And so, yeah, when you when you get to experience these people and really truly care about what they're about, what they have to tell you, what they can offer you, you really get a different perspective than, like you said, that you may, may or may not be able to find on Google. Yeah. Well, you know, let me break this down here because one of the great aspects of this, one of the mind-boggling things for me, uh, is the actual production of this because of all the mental and physical preparation that you need for this climb. I, I for one, you could not put a camera in my hand and have me come along and say, hey, Alex, I'll shoot for you as you're climbing the mountain. <laughs> not going to happen. So what logistically, because you've got camera footage going all the way up, camera and audio all the way up. Mm-hmm. And it's not it's not drone shots. Yes, you have some helicopter footage there to give us perspective uh, of the massiveness, the scope of what we're looking at. But how do you even approach this with a crew? How big was your crew complement? And some of them bit the dust. They couldn't take it. Had to be helicoptered out. Um, yes. So explain this process for me. Yeah, you know, that's a a very good point, because the biggest limiting factor to get this story that you were able to watch is to be able to climb the mountain itself. And so, therefore, that eliminates 99% of the people that would like to pick up a camera and do so, because more people, for example, played in the NFL playoffs or the World Cup or these major sporting events and have climbed Mount Everest. So that's the biggest limiting factor. You have to be able to climb the mountain first and foremost. So that makes it extremely difficult, as you can imagine. And it also makes it extremely limiting. So the crew that we had, we had seven cameras running, and we also filmed wow. this all in virtual reality as well, which we'll be releasing, you know, a few months from now later on this summer. Oh. Uh, on top of that, but you know, our crew got smaller. <laughs> like you said, the higher we went. So you know, again, our, our camera crew, which a lot of it was based out of L.A., uh, Las Vegas, and Denver. You know, uh, you know, it's the the thing that we had to take in consideration. Okay, what do we need? in order to get all the footage in Kathmandu. How many people do we need in order to get the base camp, which is at 17,500 feet, mind you. So there's no human civilization that's ever even lived above 17,000 feet. You can't stay there indefinitely. So, you know, just getting to base camp is, is an arduous nine-day trek in its own right. So that was extremely difficult on the crew. But then when we got there, we had to do all the interviews and get all the preparation and the backstory stuff that we wanted to you know, incorporate with regards to the rarely seen stuff that you never see about Everest itself. But when we got to the climbing part, we knew, okay, how are we going to actually get this footage? Well, it has to be climbers themselves, people that are actually slated to go to the summit or the ones that are going to attempt to try to make it to the summit, not the rest of the crew that, you know, A, is not permitted to even attempt it, but B, uh, would probably not be capable of doing so. So that was then um, fell back on my shoulders 
uh, Ryan Waters, who you see in the film, who was the expedition leader, a good friend of mine, and another uh, good friend of mine who I actually shared the summit with all alone for 45 minutes, Tashi. Mm-hmm. So the rest of the way up the mountain, once we stepped foot into the icefall, all the way to the summit back down, all that footage was filmed by us three. Uh, because, again, that was the major limiting factor was who was actually going to be able to try to climb this mountain to the top. Now, was it my imagination, or did you have a rig, uh, a ca- like a GoPro kind of camera or a smaller camera, maybe a, like a, a handheld Black Magic or something? Did you have that on a pole affixed to your, we had, to your I, back gear? I had gear? actually multiple. Yes, actually I had a multiple setup. I filmed uh, everything in POV as well as, you know, handheld and dolly shots on a small, you know, uh, handheld camera because, again, weight becomes the big issue yep. here. And also reliability, right? So, A, you can't carry a ton of weight up there because everything gets exponentially harder the higher you go because of how toxic it is and how difficult it is to climb Everest. But also the batteries freezing or the mm-hmm. lenses fogging over. Like, you know, it can go from a 100-degree heat index down to a negative 60 below zero. So that's extremely stressful on any kind of equipment. So you have to be able to keep it in your down suit to keep it warm so it would even turn on. And so the batteries, you know, don't freeze and they're able to operate. So in order to do that, you have to have a small enough cameras to be able to, you know, keep those close to your possession. So I had the POV camera on a gimbal that I used, and I also had also a virtual reality camera. And that's maybe the pole that you're talking about. And that mm-hmm. was because... I wanted to film this whole thing also in first-person VR to be the first ever 52-day ascent of Mount Everest in virtual reality in first-person VR because I realized, again, that 99.9% of the people on this planet will never have that opportunity to go to Everest, let alone be able to try to summit it. So why not try to give you the closest possible experience of what it's like without being dumb enough to get off the couch and try it yourself? Yeah, well, you know, all of this begs the big, the important question. Did you see a psychiatrist before you embarked on this? Um, You know, it's one thing, it's one thing if you're an experienced climber to want to make this attempt. It's another if you want to make this attempt and shoot a first person POV movie at the same time. (laughs) You know? Yeah, that's a very good point, too, Debbie. I mean, you know, I think part of it that, may have been somewhat helpful in this regard besides how difficult was the film and logistics of it all is it's almost like a war reporter analogy so imagine a war reporter covering the the coverage back in syria or now in ukraine you know or in afghanistan and so on a lot of times war reporters they end up getting shot and they become casualties of war because they're just documenting it and they have this false sense of security because they're sitting behind a lens thinking well i'm not shooting anybody I'm not a combatant. I'm not in this military. So why would they shoot at me? Well, A, the bullets don't care, and oftentimes the enemy doesn't. So the same thing applied yeah. here. When I'm crossing a ladder in the Kumbu Icefall, it's a thousand foot deep crevasse, and it's five Home Depot style ladders strung together by fishing twine, and it's bouncing up and down, and you have one inch of purchase to try to stay balanced on the ladder. Well, I also had to film that. Yeah. So where you might have a deer in headlight moment where a lot of people say, nope, I'm not going any further. They turn around, world-class athletes, you know, mentally tough people, you know, all type A personalities. They still said, oh, this is too risky. I can't take this. I'm not going any further. They freeze up, and that's the end of their expedition. Well, the fact that I also had to document all this probably also disassociated me at times from a lot of the danger that I was experiencing as well as the hardships of how difficult it was. 
you were thinking more about the filming aspect instead yeah. of what the hell am I doing? <laughs> that was a constant internal struggle. Like, what are you doing? And keep going. <laughs> I mean, I have to say, Alex, when you were over the ice fall and you're and you've got the camera, you know, it's on your head. It's pointing down. Yeah. We see your toes. We see your hands trying to hold on. And all I'm thinking is, oh, my God. I was on the edge of my chair. I kid you not. I could not believe that. Because, you know, when people think about climbing mountains, all right, you're going up, you know, sheer rock, like, you know, El Capitan or something. Yeah, okay, it's, it's sheer rock face. Or anybody that saw Cliffhanger with Stallone years ago. Um, but that's not what this is. It's not just you hit a snowy patch. Oh, it's not just there's rock face. There's these ice falls that are just, not, they look beautiful, but mm -hmm. so menacing and dangerous. And yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The Kumbu Ice Fall, uh, Debbie, is, you know, considered by many, the deadliest two and a half miles on earth, you know, because it flows at up to six feet a day downhill. So you're talking about blocks of ice the size of office buildings and houses and cars that are, that's flowing downhill of up to six feet a day. So what do you think is going to happen? Well, they're going to crumble over. They're going to collapse. Uh, the crevasses get wider and wider and bigger and bigger. And so every time you go through the ice fall, because you don't climb Everest in one sitting, the reason why it takes so long is because you have to work your way up and down the mountain to adjust your body to that extreme altitude and to, to carry load, loads and equipment to the higher camps. So you're going through the ice fall multiple times. So each time you go through it, it's like playing Russian roulette. And you're just hoping that you're at the right place and not the wrong place at the wrong time. And so, yeah, you know, it can be very daunting. But on the same token, like you said, it's extremely beautiful as well. So it's this really strange, bizarre chemistry that you develop with that living beast of the ice fall moving up uh, up to six feet a day downhill see and i found that just so amazing as i'm watching those segments and hearing you talk about them on camera uh and it's like you never know it's like yes you have to keep making the same technically the same route for your acclimation um and also you know for breathing purposes and oxygenation and also to move equipment from point A to point B. But in those ice falls, uh, it never occurred to me until watching you that even though you have marked out, here's all your Home Depot ladders, here they are, <laughs> you're crossing here today. When you try to go the other, do it tomorrow, those ladders may have to be moved somewhere else. So yes, it, and they might not even be there. Yeah, it, they, might, they might get wiped out by an avalanche, or they might get wiped out by a serac collapse, or they might just fall into an opening crevasse that's getting wider. I mean, that is something that never would have occurred to me without seeing this documentary um, and you talking about this. That because that's just that is beyond harrowing, and there's no there's no <laughs> other way to get around it though. You got you have to cross it. That's exactly right. Like Russell Bryce says in the film, he goes, there's nowhere in the world you would climb an ice fall like this, nowhere except for on Mount Everest. If Mount Everest was the second highest, third highest, fourth highest, or 20th highest mountain in the world, no one would ever climb through that ice fall. But since it's the highest mountain in the world, and if you want to get to the top of the world, you just have to go through that You're ice gonna fall. You're going to do it. You're going to do it. Nuts like you. Yep. 
<laughs> it was a promise. You know, I had to honor a promise to myself as a yep. teenager. Uh, because if I couldn't keep a promise to myself, Debbie, how am I going to guarantee my commitments to you or anyone else? That's just it. That's just it. And, I mean, I commend you for that. Something that started as a childhood promise. And what I find so interesting is you grew up, I, I believe, in the Midwest area, which is flat. Correct. It's flat, <laughs> man. Um, you know, you can. it's as far as the eye can see. Of course, standing on the top of Everest, as far as the eye can see, there's nothing obstructing you. But, it's, but I find that really interesting uh, in you as a person to grow up on this very, very flat place. And your, your dream yeah. was to be in this mountainous at the top of these mountain ranges at the highest point on the planet. And yeah, that's, that's, a, that's very true. I mean, again, in, in Omaha, Nebraska, where I had that recollection and made that promise to myself that I would climb the mountain one day, you're, you're absolutely right. There's not A, there's no mountains anywhere nearby. Tulsa's mountains are 500 miles away. And on top of that, there's no one in that uh, mindset of, oh, yeah, I'm going to be a mountaineer. I'm going to get into rock climbing, yeah. ice climbing, glacial travel, any of that kind of stuff. That's just, just not even in the mindset. And so when I had that recollection of sitting on that couch in Omaha, Nebraska, making that promise to myself, I was living in Denver, Colorado, which is a mecca for mountaineering and rock climbing and so on, but I wasn't into mountaineering or rock climbing at the time when that recollection, you know, for some re ridiculous reason, dawned on me again <laughs> uh, after watching daytime television, you know, nothing to do with Everest at all, but uh, it dawned on me, and then all of a sudden I got into mountaineering the next day because that's how the process started. And so I had to start somewhere and, and I had to learn along the way. I took a lot of formal classes and climbed a lot of mountains to try to get to a position where I could make that attempt on Everest. But during that process, it also showed me, you know, said, okay, I realized that risking my life on Denali in Alaska to climb the highest mountain in North America or climb the highest mountain in South America in Argentina or to climb Mount Rainier or any of the 14ers here in, in the wintertime, which are the 14,000-foot peaks here in Colorado, mm -hmm. and so on. These, you know, To do these things, I couldn't just do it for myself to risk my life, all the time it takes, all the training, all the money. And that's where the idea for the quest all of a sudden came to me as well. I was a sitting, standing on the summit of Denali in Alaska at 1130 at night you know, under that Alaskan perpetual sun mm -hmm. during the summertime, which is bizarre in its own right. Um, that's when I said, okay, I gotta, I gotta do something bigger with this because I've got to be able to take the world on my shoulders because I know they're not going to have this opportunity otherwise to see this kind of stuff. Yeah, no, absolutely. But you know, this is what happens when you watch soap operas. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> this is what happens. They set you on a path of no return. <laughs> oh my Spot God. On. Alex, you know, once you got down, once you got back to civilization again, and you've got all this incredible footage, how did you how did you and your editing team, how did you even start putting this together? Because I can only imagine how much more footage you have that is not in this 80 minutes of film. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, we, we came down with 63 hours of content. Um, and so the first, it took months just to catalog everything, you know, every shot, every angle, every take, you know, every camera, cause we had seven cameras. So we, we cataloged it by the camera then we cataloged it by the camera angle. This is, this is a long shot, medium shot, close up shot. Then the take the location, where are we specifically, for example, on the trek or what day of the climb. 
So that took months alone just to catalog all those clips. And then, wow. you're right. I mean, I, if I had it my way, I, that this film would be three hours long. But I also know that nobody in this day and age will watch three hours. I would. Film. I you would. Know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll watch it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, you know, I like those, that really cerebral kind of stuff like Werner Herzog and mm-hmm. David Attenborough and these kind of things. But I know that also the, the modern generation is not so apt to sit down and watch a long documentary like that. So that made it another challenge was to say, okay, we have 63 hours of content that we have to catalog at 2D, VR, all the different cameras and so on. And then on top of that, we have to now make this uh, entertaining enough, short enough, but still informative enough yeah. that people will watch it. And so that was, a, that was definitely a challenge to get it down to those 72 minutes. Wow. You know, something that you also bring to light in the documentary, because I have heard this over the years, as more and more people wanted to start trekking and, and attempt to reach the Everest summit, um, was all the quote-unquote, the, the trash that was being left on the mountain uh, at the various points going up there. And this is something that you address in the documentary uh, and how the environmental cleanup of the mountain, that trash comes back down. You don't leave trash. Um, The different base camp sites, they get broken down. They get cleaned up. Um, I think this in this day and age, I think it's very important that you brought that uh, to everyone's attention. Uh oh, you disappeared there. You're very faint. What'd you do? Did you move? <laughs> Can you hear me now? Yes, there you go. Yep. Uh, so, so yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right, Debbie. Oftentimes, that's something that's overlooked, and it's also something that's not even discussed because you see all the tragedy that happens on Everest. Every year, yeah. people die. There's no way around it. It's just part of the the process. Um, but you you know you see the you know some of the negative coverage with the long lines and these kind of things, and those things can happen as well. But yeah, the the, the Nepalese government or the Nepalese Mountaineering Authority and the Sagamartha Pollution Control Committee, so Sagamartha National Park, is where uh, Mount Everest actually sits. So they've done a very good job in recent years to say, okay, we're going to take a concerted effort to not only clean up the mountain, but make uh, climbers responsible for that. Otherwise, they lose their $5,000 deposit uh, mm-hmm. that you have to give to the Nepalese uh, government. So, you know, they've done, they've done a very good job on cleaning up the mountain. They've even sent up teams where their only job is to assist in cleaning up the mountain. Mm-hmm. Their job is not to go for the summit. Their job is not to do anything else but to help bring down previous years, you know, uh, trash or oxygen bottles and so on. Uh, and so they've done a very good job, and you see that in the film, like you like you mentioned. You know, I interviewed the, the person who's in charge of all that, mm-hmm. you know, and sharing it does a heck of a job in organizing and coordinating all that trash being helicoptered back down either the Kathmandu or the Lukla or to put on a yak and carry it down valley. You know, so yeah, they've done they've done a fantastic job, and they'll continue to do so because you know you're talking about the mountain was first climbed in 1953, so. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of continual uh, work that will continue to be done in order to get the mountain and get to the Chomalungma, Chomalungma, the goddess mother of the world, as pristine as possibly can, uh, given the endeavor of climbing Mount Everest. Yeah, I was so glad that you included that uh, because I knew that there was environmental cleanup that was happening 
on the mountain, mm-hmm. but that's not something that's really brought to light. People are more likely to talk about the trash. Right, um, exactly. But no, there are people who are taking care of that to restore. Um, and from the looks of things, it looks like it's in, the mountain's in pretty good shape right now. Yeah, it's getting better and better. And, you know, again, the logistics are, are really on point. The, the effort is there. And as long as the, you know, the international community, mountaineering community, because, again, it's a hodgepodge of people from all across yeah. the world that come there for two months. It's, you know, essentially the United Nations on a, on a moving sheet of ice at 17,500 feet for two months in tents, that if everyone from the different parts of the world that they come from to go climb this mountain, you know, has that same mentality, boy, you're, you're going to see uh, that yeah. stuff even be expedited even further. So, you know, the Western climbers are, are extremely good with it because that's something that we're taught, the leave no trace mentality mm-hmm. and so on. Um, and so, you know, it, it really, really has come a long way in the last several years. So now what's next for you, Alex? You have now conquered the top of the world and you've made a <laughs> documentary about it. How do you top exactly. it? How no, do you top this? Well, well, here's how we're going to top it. We're not going to top it from the standpoint of necessarily saying, you know, the adventure element of the quest, will it be topped? I, that's not for me to decide. That's for other people to judge. But we wanted to make the quest Nepal the first installment of this ongoing series. And, and the reason why was, okay, talk is cheap. A lot of people say they want to go film this, they want to go film this, they want to do this. And, and a lot of people say, we love the treatment, we love the story, you know, it all looks great, but can you actually do it, right? Because the odds of actually pulling it off are extremely low. So we said, okay, let's put our money where our mouth is. Let's try the hardest thing first, because if we're able to pull that off, then I think that we have a pretty good chance of success to replicate that same formula to the other uh, places in the world that we want to go and and tell these rarely seen fascinating stories about these amazing places on our planet. So what we have uh, lined up, we have about the next four or five uh, installments lined up locations lined up of where we want to go and that's going to we're going to start going into pre-production for the next quest probably sometime this fall and depending on factors for example covid was a huge restricting factor in recent times of where in the world we can go but geopolitical factors for example is coming to play in this case you know one of them was going to be in southern russia and the caucasus mountains well with a blue passport going to russia right now it's probably not in the cards not a good idea yeah, not a good idea. So, you know, depending on the geopolitical situation and, and the landscape, and also the time of year, of course, because sure. a lot of it is seasonal, depending on where you're going, will dictate where we go next. But we'll uh, unpack and figure that all out here this fall, and we'll set up for the next one or two quests in 2023. Well, and in the meantime, later this summer, this year, you're going to have the VR of the Quest Nepal for us. Correct. Yep. And, it, and that's going to be called the Quest Everest VR Experience. It's a 26-minute experience, and it's going, to, it's going to be able to take you on the 52-day expedition all the way from the trek where we land in Lukla all the way to the summit and back to Kathmandu. So you're going to get a first-person perspective of what it's like to actually climb that mountain. So, yeah, that's, uh, we're excited to be releasing that later on this summer as well. Wow. Well, after you release that, I have to see it. You definitely will have to be back on the show so we can talk about the VR experience. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I'd love to hear what your, what your thoughts are of what it's like to look down my shoulder right into a crevasse and so on in virtual reality. <laughs> you know, I mean, I want to experience that. It's so scary. It's something you want to do. 
Yeah, yeah okay, I'm one of the nut jobs, okay? <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, Debbie, and it, and it, plays, it plays tricks on your mind. Yeah. Uh, you know, just to see sample footage and, and uh, only a handful of people seeing some of the sample footage, but you see them grabbing for the wall, you know, or you <laughs> see them, you know, spinning around because they're just captivated by what it looks like from the summit or on the Hillary step or, you know, the knife edge corners traverse and so on. And just to see them watching them watch the, the footage to me is absolutely fascinating in its own right. Uh, well, we're going to definitely talk again about this. But unfortunately, <laughs> Alex, we're all out of time today. Now, where can people s- watch The Quest absolutely. Nepal right now? Absolutely. So if anybody wants more information about The Quest Nepal or all the different channels and platforms where it's currently available to be seen, all you have to do is go to thequestnepal.com. Again, thequestnepal.com, and all that information's right there, and you can link through to any of your platforms to watch the film. Oh, Alex, this has been such a thrill to talk to you about this. Um, I, I am such a nerd. I love documentaries like this, and I'm in love with this one. <laughs> and I can't wait till we talk again, and I can't wait to see your next expeditions. Well, I appreciate that, Debbie. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. And if you can do me one more favor, just enjoy the rest of your day. And again, thanks so much. Well, you started it off perfectly, so I know I will. (laughs) Thank you, Debbie. Thanks, Alex. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Alex Harz, writer, director, editor, adventurer of the Quest Nepal. It will blow your mind, people. You've got to see it. Now, from the top of the world... We're we're going to the swamps of the of the bayou right now. Are you there, Christine? Hello. Hi, Christine. Are you there? Hello. Hi. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Welcome. Welcome. Excellent. Hi. What a fun film Urzuli is. Oh, good. <laughs> Never know whether people get to watch it or hasn't watched it or so I'm glad that you got to watch it. This I wouldn't talk to you if I hadn't seen it. I refuse to speak with yeah. filmmakers unless I have seen their film. I think it is it is oh, good. it is disrespectful to the filmmakers. It is also a waste of your time uh to talk with some yeah. to somebody who can't even talk to you about what's on the film. What's what images are I, there, what story is there. Uh and yeah. I love what you have done with Urzuli. Number one, what you and your co-writer, Camille Gladney, have put together from a story standpoint. You could go in so many directions with this. Uh, You bring in uh, some voodoo. You've got some Haitian mysticism. You've got a beautiful location. That location is beautiful. You've got, Camille also did the production design and costuming. So you've got some really eclectic, bohemian kind of decor inside, mixing with kind of a a sea water motif that picks up the idea of mermaids. And then you bring in all kinds of social issues within the realm, uh, within the, the bookends of this story. You've got feminism. You've got male stupidity. You've got arrogance. You've got drugs. You've got uh, a concern for the environment. You've got toxic contamination. You have the fantasy element of a mermaid. You've got sexual abuse. You've got bullying. 
And all of this is interwoven within our four main characters. Uh, our characters of Faye, Violet, Wendy, and Ari. Our goddess, Urzuli. Um, we get some of the most obnoxious, fun stuff where you just really want to beat the crap out of the guy from the motel manager, Rhett Lafitte. Yes. You've got great names yes. for everything, too. Um, just, Good. you know, how, where did the idea for Urzuli arise for you and Camille? Yeah, so it started uh, with uh, me, actually. I uh, have always loved mermaids. Uh, I grew up loving The Little Mermaid, and um, <laughs> I was in a pool, and, wait, sorry, is, can, can, you, can you hear me? I can I hear you. It seems like, it, okay, good. Um, I was uh, in a pool with my uh, co-production designer, so uh, my co-production designer is Kelly Penna, actually, she uh, PD'd with uh, Camille. And uh, we both were saying, like, hey, we want to do something with mermaids. It would be great if it was closer to a darker uh, folklore. And she's like, if you're in, I am. And I, I said, great. And this was during the time when uh, Trump was a president. Mm -hmm. And no offense to anybody who loves Trump, but I am not very particular about him. And I was feeling very angry and wishing do something and I had a just one image and the image was a mermaid eating the heart out of a man and from that image I wrote the beats of the uh, short film mm -hmm. it was nine pages and it surprisingly fit the beats of Ursley pretty closely from a superficial level it was four girls they were not at a camp. They went to a motel in the short film, and uh, they run into the goddess Ursley. And at that point, it was just a mermaid. We didn't know. Uh, Ursley came later when I pitched the idea to Camille, and Camille did a lot of research. Uh, I knew I wanted something with Louisiana-based, and she said, you know what, I found the goddess Ursley, who's Haitian and has some roots in voodoo in Louisiana and stuff. And we're like, yes, we're going to just go with that. So that's when the depth of the story really came to be. The superficial story was was just the four girls that run into a mermaid, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, originally, I had named the short film Amphitrite, actually, which is um, Triton's wife. Um, but that was before we delved into the folklore that is Ursula. Mm -hmm. Well, the folklore is fascinating. Yeah. The folklore is fascinating. Yeah. And that gives you so much that you can build on with the four girls and their individual, their hidden secrets um, that they haven't even told one another. And that's one of the great things because everything about Ursula is, you know, she wants those secrets. She gets to the heart of things. You know, what is your true heart's desire? And she knows when they're lying. That's when the great, she knows yeah. when they're not telling her the truth. <laughs> and, you know, it's one of those things where be careful what you wish for. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. we see that play out here. We see the pros and cons where, okay, a problem may be resolved. 
But then there's a bigger problem that, that happens in return uh, as a result right. of that. And I love, how important was it for you and Camille in, in writing this and in developing the story, tackling all of the issues that you do tackle? You've got a great blend of the folklore, the mermaid folklore, the Haitian folklore. Uh, but then, as I said, you know, bringing in the whole idea of toxic contamination and abusing our environment and uh, the idea of feminism and then the, you know, the backwoods drug running that happens and how that impacts things and sexual abuse and bullying, even to the point of you see some of the girls bullying each other, trying to force an issue. Um, so I'm curious, yep. I'm, I'm really curious how the two of you decided and worked in all of these social issues so that it, it never feels forced. It's very organic. That's great. I love, we love hearing that. Um, I have always been somebody who wants to make content that says something. I think that has to deal with my, I, I started in documentaries actually, and uh, then went into narrative, and I think that curiosity with learning about these topics that I are that I am uh, interested in and want to shed light on will always go into our stories. And Camille happens to be someone who thinks like that as well. Um, she is non-binary. She uh, has very strong beliefs in like the LGBTQ um, community and other and. Uh, has been a really big advocate on mental health and the representation of mental health um, in film. And so utilizing the girls as a vessel for how uh, women are can be troubled and, and deal with trauma in their own way it was something that was very important to her. And for me, I'm always an advocate of strong, empowered females. And so together it worked out really well. Um, the environmental aspect really came in naturally because the mermaid fur folk community are strong supporters of taking care of our environment, especially dealing with what's currently happening with our water and climate change and mm -hmm. everything. Um, it was kind of a perfect conduit to show the effects of environment issues, especially with a mermaid where, you yes. know, fish and any kind of mammals that are in the water get directly affected by what's put into our waters. So it it just all lends itself pretty naturally in that aspect. And uh, I think it's just Camille and I's love for tackling, I think, issues that people stray away from that uh, make us a good team. I, th I think the two of you are a great team to put together a film like this. Um, I'm curious where do, the location for this is perfect. You've got a perfect location with the water, with the small beach, with the with the trees. It is a gorgeous, gorgeous location. Which then, really, you and your cinematographer Joel, just you captured some beautiful imagery with the water, which also presents its own kind of challenges when you're filming. Yes. Uh, as yes. well as, you know, the greenery of the trees and what that can do to help you with negative space. 
and with night shoots and creating the idea of, you know, what's lurking in the shadows, which plays really well. And that plays into the character of Faye, her fears about the ex-boyfriend is always following her. You know, what is he lurking in the shadows? So everything, you know, this location played so beautifully. But I'm curious how you and Joel went about using your location to your advantage sure. so, in, in creating the imagery here because the visual tonal bandwidth is stunning. It, thank you. Um, a lot of it had to do with the fact that I'd been on this property before and I actually wrote the script specifically for this property of mine. So the summer prior to us shooting Ursley, uh, I, I, when I'm not a director, I assistant direct, and right. I had the opportunity to AD three features on the same property for a different production company. And so when I was there, I felt very inspired by what you're talking about, the river, the beach, the greenery, and everything that I wrote the film specifically for the location down to the river house. The river house is an actual, it's called the river house on that location as well. Oh, wow. Um, I knew exactly where base camp would be. I knew, I knew this property inside and out because um, as an AD uh, doing three features, which was almost two months of my life during the pandemic, um, the week, sorry, the month, not month, the year prior, uh, solidified, I could probably, in my mind, map out this entire location, you know, just drawing it. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's how I, when I wrote it, I had that location very much in mind. And so I actually went ahead and uh, this was an interesting process because Joel has never seen the location at all. Uh, in fact, the first time he saw the location was whatever photos that we took when um, I took Camille to go location scout so she could see what I was seeing in my head so clearly. And we took photos for him. And uh, then he was on the property for about a week prior to starting principal photography. And so I had to, uh, he had to trust in me a lot uh, mm -hmm. because I went in and did a pretty detailed storyboard with a storyboard artist based off of what I had experienced on the property and from the photos and everything that I had taken specifically. So when I went in writing it, I knew exactly where everything would take place. And I knew, you know, which parts of the river we could use and you know, whatnot. So I think that helped. And Joel really um, leaned into it and trusted me with my knowledge of the property. And then, of course, he went the week of prep he went in to look at all the locations to make sure, like, is what I wanted doable, you know, and sometimes he would give his two cents about, like, okay, with limited lighting here, I would suggest this, or we can't do this shot, we need it, maybe what about this shot type thing, and we would basically come down to a happy middle ground, mm -hmm. so... Were yeah. you, so a lot of this is at night. Were you shooting night for night or? Yep. Yeah. It was night for night. We were vampires uh, <laughs> for a whole week, at least. And uh, it was May, so it definitely still got dark at 9 or 8.30 yeah. p.m. Then we were fighting the sunlight. 
Uh, so, you know, we, we lost a good, you know, two, three hours because the sun comes out at 6 a.m. pretty much, you know. So um, that's at least because of that, we, we rarely went over 12 hours a day because we, we were limited by the sun coming out, uh, which is great. Happy for the crew. But, yes, it was night for night for pretty much all of it. Yeah, because it looks so rich that I couldn't imagine that, that you were shooting, you know, night for day, day for night here. It ha- I was sure, yeah. because of the richness and the texture uh, and the light that you were, the ambient light that you were picking up that comes with night. Uh, there, yeah. there is, people seem to forget that, yeah, you do get some filtered light at night. It's ambient. Uh, so it, yeah. it really, it works so well. And then you contrast that, uh, especially inside the, the room, the cottage where all the girls are staying. And it's almost, it's almost, you know, little mermaid fairy-like with all the little, with the little lights and the multicolor, uh, the little loft and the silk hanging down, you know, draping like a canopy. Um, it really, really plays so well against each other uh, and fits. I, I'm so glad that you, you said that. Um, yeah, our production team for arts worked their butt off. They transformed that place. Uh, we wanted it to be like a magical place for, mm-hmm. like, if, if little girls, like 13-plus girls, like, you know, want to have a sleepover, like they would yep. want to put their space that way. And, you know, it's a place that you could do your try your witchy things, like light as a feather, you know, and that's the kind of vibe we really wanted, this bohemian, very mislifty, like somebody who's well-traveled yes. and worldly would have. And so I'm glad that you could see that reflected in because there was a little bit of everything you know there were silks there were lights um you know the decor the sea shanty uh sign but then you see the pictures on walls so it really does it's very eclectic very bohemian but it feels so natural it feels like it all belongs as as disparate as the the pieces themselves are put together they feel like they belong and i think that added a lot to the to the story you know how challenging was your casting with this one because i number one Layla anastasia scott who plays drizuli uh she is fabulous fabulous i agree and did you did you stick contacts in that poor woman's eyes (laughs) yeah oh my god Oh my God! Yeah. Um, yeah, it was. She, it was. There were moments where we're like, can't pause, hot, cut, cut, cut. I can't. My, my <laughs> contact has moved, and we're like, oh God. <laughs> oh my. But, um. Yeah, yeah she's fantastic. Fantastic. It, it, she was surprisingly our wild card. Uh, everybody else, I had 
worked with to some degree either I directed them before or I'd been their first AD. Mm -hmm. Um, But Leela was the only person where it was out of left field, basically. She was actually recommended by uh, the actress that plays Ari, um, Diana Rose. Mm -hmm. Uh, They must have worked on some other project before, and she was like, well... She recommended the project to her to, to audition for, and the, when the audition came in, I, I was blown away. Even even her first audition wasn't even Creole, like the Creole accent. It was she made some, I guess, pretty, um, like British, some sort of royal uh, accent, and it was still great. It was her demeanor and the way she carries herself is exactly the way we envision Ursley to be and we, when I saw that I was like okay let's just hope she can swim let me forward this <laughs> to Camille and to my <laughs> creative director because it would be our pro- would be our luck if if we found the perfect actress but of course she can't swim um and so it was but uh it all worked out and uh she's been quintessential to the entire process um even if since the release, um, we've been, I've had this crazy idea. We've been kind of touring the film. Uh-huh. And so she's like, I brought my mermaid on tour, basically. So she's been coming to location. To location and everybody loves her. Well, and, and speaking of mermaids, her costume, when she's in full mermaid regalia, it is stunning. Yes. It is, it's a beautiful costume. With the gold, uh, you know, coming out of her hair, and then as we just see the, the the tail, the mermaid tail in the water, and then when she's carried out on the couch, and and I mean the whole idea, and with the hair dryer trying to dry her, um, so that she'll yeah. have legs. We've seen that so many times in mermaid things. So <laughs> I I I chuckled a little because I knew it had to be there. If she's out of water, it had to be there. Um, but yes, it's our our ode to Slash, ode to every mermaid film. (laughs) But no, she is fantastic. And the other four Zoe Graham, Elizabeth Trio, Courtney Olivier, and Diana Rose. I mean, just wonderful. They mesh really well, which was important here. Yes, I agree. I um made three of them. Uh, three, yeah, three of them live together, actually. Oh, wow. Uh, so that picture cabin, uh, it was strategically planned on my end to put the three girls, which were uh, Courtney Olivier, by, who plays Wendy, mm-hmm. and then Diana Rose plays Ari, and then Zoe Graham plays May. They all actually live in the picture cabin that uh, is in the film. Oh, wow. And I think it really helped because they, you know, woke up with each other, ate with each other, slept with each other. So, like, <laughs> that they became friends. So they all have this group chat now that they all, you know, <laughs> try to go and, and hang out and do stuff together and stuff. So they're, they're all legitimately friends. And uh, I really think because of that, they developed this bond that you can really feel in the film. And mm-hmm. that's the one big thing that audiences will comment on time and time and again how these four girls seem like their own friends you 
know, like, mm-hmm. and that's something that's really important to me because I wanted to highlight the importance of sisterhood and female friendship. And uh, during our, when the film released on June 14th, uh, there was a group of teenage girls that recreated the end, uh, end screen of the four girls hugging each other. And it was like pretty cool to see that you know well you have to have them you have to have for the film to work they have to feel like they have known each other forever um they really do because they haven't seen each other in a while but they know each other's histories to a degree because all four still have some secrets hidden from each other um yep. so but so you need that context. You need that history, but then you also need the distance of yeah. the the lack of current of recent familiarity. And that real you can feel that among the four of them. So I mean it just works so well. But I and I have to commend you, Jason Kirkpatrick as Rhett Lafitte. <laughs> wow. Number one, he starts out as a kick in the as a kick in the ass. He's funny to start with, and then you find yeah. out just what a buffoon and what a moron and what a bad guy he is. Uh, yeah. But he is Jason really brings that character to life because the motel manager, unless you're Norman Bates, you know they're they're very rarely you know that exciting and interesting. Uh, and he really made Rhett interesting. Yes. Yeah, he nailed it. Um, I had met him coincidentally on those four, uh, three features that I AD the prior year before, mm-hmm. and I saw him in action and, you know, wrote the, the part for him, actually. He was so good in his auditions that our uh, executive producers were very concerned about his mental stability. (laughs) (laughs) They they were, they were like, are you sure you want him to be it? You know, he seems kind of off. I was like, no, no, no. He's just very good at acting. (laughs) Um, And yeah, he was great. He brought, I, I think the biggest thing that he does well is, he understands situational comedy, and he doesn't force comedy. Mm-hmm. Like, he really was that character, and he understood that character, and the things that were funny weren't because it's a forced joke, ha-ha type thing. It's right. like he legitimately, as a person, as a buffoon, believed the things that were coming out of his mouth, mm-hmm. you know? So, which is what made it very funny. I mean, the scene, uh, in, no, the, he was the scene in the bar... With him and the stripper was hilarious. <laughs> that was so hilarious, but so organic. And it, that's what's really nice is because we have some of the darker moments with the girls. Yeah. <laughs> and then we count- I love that scene. Oh my! And then you counter it with his stupidity. Uh. Yeah. So it just works so so well. So now, what's what's next for the film is out? Everyone can see it on digital platforms everywhere now. Correct. So what's next for uh, you? Ne- yeah. Well, I I mean 
I set it up for a nice sequel. Uh, my you did. To make a sequel. Yes. I But my plans for a sequel are significantly larger in terms of budget, scope, and scale. Uh, this was my calling card to show that I can write and direct and all that stuff. And the hope is from this, people will have more faith in me to give me the bigger bucks. So, because what I have in mind for the sequel is cannot be done at all with anything close to the budget that we had for this film. So, um, that's the hope is to start to uh, write out what our sequel will be. And um, in the meantime, I'm also writing some other content as well because I'm a realistic artist and I understand that getting raising funding is difficult and if I have to make two or three more films that are closer to the budget level of Ursley to prove myself I am prepared to do that as well so hey where you, I'm at. <laughs> whatever it takes whatever it takes yep. Christine oh my god Correct. So now that, because I think this is what, your second feature film. Um, yes. And you've got shorts under your belt, plus ex your extensive work as second unit AD, first AD. So you, you came at this with a wealth of production experience. But I'm curious, yes. stepping into this as co-writer, director, editor, what did you learn making Ursley Ur as a filmmaker that you can now take forward into those future projects that you direct, be it a smaller, low-budget, no-budget, micro-budget film, or the bigger, expanded, and glorious sequel to Ursula? I think the biggest thing is it's confirmed everything that I've learned. Mm -hmm. So uh, I feel like every time I do a film, my pre-production time doubles, triples, quadruples. <laughs> It's all about prep. Yep. Um, <laughs> the, this film was only possible because of the prep we put in, because filming something in 11 days is really difficult. So that, so, you know, doing more and more prep. Um, I, it also confirms for me that I am a director that loves rehearsal, and it works well if I have that. Um, and finally, I think for me, it's always about the crew and the cast in terms of how they are as individuals as well. And so I really handpicked my crew and I learned a lot about everyone and needs and, and everything. And, and I think being realistic about everybody's needs will help me go forth with, you know, the amount of budget that I need to raise in order to keep people happy. Mm -hmm. So um, I would just say, I mean, for me, I learned the most on this in post. Um, I, I've done every, every film I've done pretty much all my posts my editing and everything, but I, this is the one that I did a lot of test screenings on. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of our, I think the reason why it's so tight and the story is easy to follow is because we did a lot of test screenings to understand what our audience saw in the film. And that helped with making the story stronger and more clear and concise. And I will continue to expand that process. I may make that post-process even longer with that um, because I learned so much during that process and all the details that you can input into the post-process that I never got to in my previous films. Because my previous films, like, usually you do the edit and then maybe there were, like, two other edits. Maybe I would, like, send it off to uh, four of my friends and they give me my... This one, we went through so many iterations. We did a pretty early on screening to some investor donators. Then we opened it up to, you know, an audience of people we knew and didn't know. And then, like, then we continued to fix things along the way. And uh, I think it's I've, that's something I'm going to incorporate in and build in my timeline this a longer period for post revision i think the revision period was the part i learned the most about uh, in this process and you learned that people like mermaids yes oh yes i have uh, <laughs> during this thing i i had suspected and heard and everything because when i pitched the film to raise the money i had to have a pretty beefy marketing plan. Sure. And I learned about uh, different people in the world that love mermaids. It's a world phenomenon. And my marketing uh, plan has been to go grassroots to some of these mermaid events. Um, I'm coming back from one. Actually, I just came from the Afro Mermaid Summit. And uh, not too long ago, um, I came, I went to the California Mermaid Convention in Sacramento, and uh, I will be, I have two more places that are mermaids, and these are just in the U.S. alone, and they're all over the world, and so uh, that's been really cool. It's not, it's not a hobby, it's a lifestyle. Yeah. That's what I've learned, like, it's a legit lifestyle. Um, you know how, like, people have closets full of clothes? Mermaids have closets full of tails. Oh my yeah, God! It's 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 pretty cool. It's a it's an incredible community. Uh, I've met uh, Leila and I have had the opportunity to meet many mermaids, and it's been amazing to see their support. Uh, when we opened up in Los Angeles, uh, we had a uh, mermaid specific red carpet event at the Lemley and they came dressed to the nines uh, in Aww. their mermaid galore and it was like amazing to see that kind of support so wow yeah I'm excited I I, I can't wait for the sequel oh. because I've been I'm now instead of also collecting crew I'm collecting mermaids oh well to see, see who I can put into the next Ah, <laughs> oh, well, here's to a, I, I personally would love to see a sequel to this one, Christine. Uh, the way that you left this, I was like, yes, more. Good. So I'm looking That's forward to the want. sequel. 
I'm looking forward to it. Oh, Christine, this has been so wonderful getting to talk to you about Ursula and mermaids and voodoo and bringing it to life. <laughs> and uh, I love your perspectives and your lessons learned with post-production. Uh, that This is something really interesting that not too many people, that's not where they learn most of their most filmmakers they talk about learning they need more pre more prep as opposed yeah. to time in post so i really love your perspective on this it's very eye opening for glad. filmmakers very yeah, eye opening i have already gotten the production perspective being an yes AD, so yes that that's i have it up the up the wazoo cuz i've watched directors make prep mistakes over and over and over again on their, pro yeah. their productions being in AD. So I had that in the bag and I prepared the crap out of it. So the post part was the, definitely the part that I uh, learned, had more to learn about. So. Well, I can't wait to see what you do next, be it <laughs> Ursula's sequel or one of your other films while you get the funding together for an Ursula's sequel. But, oh, yeah. this has been wonderful, Christine. I hope you'll come back on the show again. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. Thank you. And you have a great rest thank of your you. day. Yes, yes, you too. Thank you so much for watching the film. And I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm going to watch it again just because I liked it. So Yeah, tell <laughs> people. I will. Yes, yes. Thanks, Christine. Bye-bye. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. And that was Christine Chen, co-writer, director, editor of Urzuli, or Urzuli, however you want to say it. Um, it's out now digitally. So that is all the time we have today. Yes, we ran late again. I know. Um, but a great, great documentary. Check it out. The Quest Nepal. Uh, and Ursley, it's got fantasy, voodoo. It's got some cool stuff happening. It's a little on the dark side. But uh, I think you'll like it a lot. So, until next week, I have no clue who we're going to have on the show next week. We may just have pre-records next week. I'm not sure yet. But, until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Behind the Lens.